Hello, and welcome to the Anxiety Slayer podcast. I'm Shan Vanderleek, anxiety coach and co-founder of AnxietySlayer.com and the Anxiety Slayer Academy. Today, it's my pleasure to introduce you to Neil Hazricha. Neil thinks, writes, and speaks about living intentionally. All of his current work focuses under the themes of gratitude, happiness, failure, resilience, and trust. Neil is the author of six books, including The Book of Awesome, a spinning Rolodex of simple pleasures based on his award-winning blog, 1000 Awesome Things, and his new book, You Are Awesome, How to Navigate Change, Wrestle with Failure, and Live an Intentional Life. Neil's books are New York Times bestsellers and have sold millions of copies across dozens of languages. Welcome to Anxiety Slayer, Neil. Thank you, Shan, so much for having me. Oh, I'm grateful that you're here today. I know that this is just really feeling like, yes, this conversation with Neil is the perfect way to start out the new year for all of the Anxiety Slayer listeners who want to put their best foot forward. And talking about resilience is a great way to start. Ten years ago, your life fell apart after your marriage broke up and your best friend took his life. And in the years since that heartbreaking experience, You've had so much to celebrate. How did you go from suffering through these life-altering losses to living your life with intention? Yeah, uh, well, it, I suffered. <laughs> when my wife told me she didn't want to be married to me anymore, I felt my entire future and present moment crumble. I was supposed to be married and have a house and get ready to have kids. We were talking about having kids and have a job. This was like, everything I was kind of told to do. And I'm in my late 20s. And now if this marriage isn't going to work, then we got to sell our house. And now I'm back to square one. And I was super stressed and I was super anxious about it. I had lost 40 pounds due to stress. And people at work were telling me, oh, you look great. What's your secret? You know, everyone projected onto me like that was a good thing, but I just wasn't sleeping and I wasn't eating. And so I did a few things that really helped. Number one is for the first time in my life at age 28, I went to a therapist and it was something I really pushed against and railed against and didn't want to do. And I thought this is for people with problems and I don't have a problem. I just had an unfortunate situation, right. but it was so beneficial for me to talk openly without prejudice, without risk, about all the wild feelings that were inside my mind and inside my body and have them go somewhere safe. I just felt like a spewing that was so healthy. And I ended up going to therapy twice a week for about six months. And I mentioned that because that's a big part of my story that I don't talk about very much. But I wanted to say to people, like I was, I was stuck there and that was really helpful. The second thing I did was I felt like everything was negative. I felt like the relationship was negative. That I, you know, like I said, I had to sell my house. My best friend has just taken his own life. I'm, I'm in distraught. So I, I try to distract myself. And unfortunately for me, Shan, I guess unfortunately for all of us, the way we distract ourselves is, you know, you look at the news, you, you turn on the TV, you, you whatever, turn on the radio. It's all negative. Like yeah. literally every single thing you listen to, hear, or see is negative. And that's for a very specific reason. I don't now, I didn't know then, but after a lot of research into this, it's because specifically the media is a business. MSNBC's goal is to glue you to a television screen to sell you Subarus. Fox News' goal is to glue you to a television screen and sell you money market scams. Like ultimately, our amygdala in our brains is so oriented towards fight or flight that we want to see the negative. So they feed it to us because it makes us stick and watch it more. 
I didn't know that at the time. All I knew was I can't look at this. It's distress. It's driving me nuts. So I, I go on Google. I type in how to start a blog. I click the I'm feeling lucky button and I start a website out of nowhere with no real major goals or intentions just to distract myself. And the website I start is called 1000awesomethings.com. Just as a way to put a smile on my face before I go to bed every night. So I'm like, come home from work and I'm like, okay, I got to think of something good. What one good thing that happened? I'm like, oh, when you flip to the cold side of the pillow in the middle of the night, right? Then the next day I come home and I write about getting called up to the dinner buffet first at a wedding. And the next day I come home and I write about hitting a string of green lights when you're late for work. And nobody read this website. Like no, like my, my mom read the website right. and then she forwarded it to my dad and then the traffic doubled. Right. Okay. <laughs> and then like, literally it was like, no, like, cause it's like 50,000 blogs are started today. You know, for anyone that starts a podcast there or starts a website or starts an Instagram, like no one's looking at your stuff. You, you got the, you got permission to do whatever cause no one's watching you. But then it started getting some traction, 10 hits a day, 50 hits a day, a hundred say, I remember to this day, Shan, the first day I got a comment on my blog from somebody I did not know. You know what I mean? I was like, yeah, yeah. Like I was like, who's this person? How do how do they find the website? You know, right? And because uh, the other people were like friends of mine. You know what I mean? Like they, the three friends that took pity on me were like, nice, nice blog, good job, Neil. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. so that so then it took off. It reached uh, eventually. I'm I'm shortening the story here, but it eventually reached 50 million visitors. Turned into a book because it won an award called the International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences Webby Award for Best Blog in the World. And then it turned into a book called The Book of Awesome. That book came out in 2010. And that's the book that you kind of trumpeted at the beginning there. This kind of took off. And that was the start of me kind of even writing anything. Sure, sure. And just kind of like scratching your head going, wow, check that out. This, this, this daily practice turned into all of this wonderful stuff to celebrate. Yeah. Wow. It did. It did. And it didn't like it did. It did extrinsically for sure. And, and objectively, yes, for sure. And metric wise and money wise and bestseller wise and all that stuff for sure. But Chan, I was still a wreck. Yeah, <laughs> I'm course. still a mess. Like I'm still like, I, I'm changing my hairdo to try to distract myself from my old hair. Like I'm doing weird. I'm just like literally <laughs> living in my, I gotta, li- I gotta move somewhere. But, and then I'm like, Oh, I, I gotta buy a fancy TV because I want to like, you know, all I'm going to be doing is sitting at home watching TV. I got no, I got no friends, and all our mutual friends. When I was married, I didn't want to see them either because they reminded yeah. me of my wife. I blogged and I cried and I went to therapy and I kept trying to slowly, slowly, slowly learn how to say yes to myself and mm-hmm. learn how to say yes to the rare invitations I would receive. If you look at your inbox really closely, you probably have a lot of invitations there, but you probably just delete them and you think they're spam. And this is an example of one that I said yes to. The local theater in Toronto, Canada, sent an email saying, we're looking for people to join our youth theater program, meaning if you're underage, whatever, 30, you can pay $30 and you can come see three plays and you'll be part of like the youth theater appreciation. This is a spam. Right. <laughs> but, but Shan, because of, I was my destituteness and I like desire to try to learn how to say yes. I said, yes. And guess what? I went and 
sure enough, I met a couple interesting new friends. And sure enough, they invited me to a couple other interesting things. And so I started from scratch. No, like my contact in my cell phone, it was like three people. It was like my mom, my dad, and my sister. I'm not joking. I literally had nobody. I didn't know anyone downtown Toronto. I didn't know anyone living in a condo downtown. I knew no one in my building. So I was quite anxious. For me, that was the lowest point in my life. And I was just trying to figure out a way to kind of keep moving and saying yes to spam to try to figure out ways to get out of my house. You have such a, a beautiful story of, of resilience. And certainly we don't make light of the experience and the suffering and everything that you did to come out the other side. You know, this is something that informs your life and that doesn't go away, but becomes another important chapter, another piece. And this is where resilience comes in and is such an important topic. I'd love for you to share with us why it's so incredibly important to learn resilience. Sure. First of all, my definition of the word resilience is the ability to see the tiny sliver of light right between the door and the frame after you hear the latch click. That's my definition because that's how I interpret resilience. It's not just getting back up. It's, it's just like, can you, you know, when everything's going wrong, can you see the potential that it could be better? The reason I believe that this muscle is so atrophied in people today is because actually, arguably, we live in an era of infinite abundance. By almost any measure, we have never lived as good as we do today right. with the, le- the length of our lifespans, the percent of literacy, the education rates, the, 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 the lower rates of disease. Some diseases, of course, have been to- completely eradicated. We have it good, yet because we have it so good, I mean, I can press a button right now and I, a car could pick me up. My phone could entertain me on the way home. And I'll have takeout waiting for me on my porch when I get there. I, I live better than a king used to live yeah. 50 years ago. And we all do. I'm talking about Uber, of course, not sure, like I have course. my own car. Right? Just like, <laughs> so, 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 right, right. And, 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 you know, Uber Eats, right, or whatever it is. So, so then, like, we live like, but as a result of this abundant world, we, have, we no longer have the tools to handle failure or even perceived failure which is why I believe that when people get two likes on their Instagram photo, they think, I have no friends. People even delete their photo. They're like, oh, no one liked this one. I should delete it. Or, or people think, oh, somebody sent me a rude email, so I better quit my job. I can't work here because I got one rude email. And, and, and I didn't just make up that example. That was told to me by a guy after one of my speeches. He said, Neil, my son went to Duke University. He's top of his class. He's a He's captain of the football team. He's a valedictorian. He got a great high-paying job. He got On his first day of work, he got a rude email from his boss, and he quit. Like, he just couldn't handle it. He called me from his bedroom that night crying. You know what I thought when I heard that story? I was like, that's me. <laughs> I was like, I would do that because I'm so thin-skinned. So the reason I wrote this new book, You Are Awesome, right, it's about – the subtitle doesn't quite say it. It's, the subtitle is How to Navigate Change, Wrestle with Failure, and Live an intentional life. But really, as you pointed out, it's all about resilience. The reason I wrote about resilience 
is because I feel like I do not have resilience. I feel like I have had very thin skin. I feel like I grew up in the 80s and 90s and like, you know, life's pretty good. So as a result, I don't have the tools to handle failure. And when I get a rude email or two likes on my photos or hope, you know, something worse like this divorce, I can't handle it. I couldn't even connect with people that were related to my, my, my ex-wife because it was so painful. I couldn't handle it. And people, you might say to me today, like I just heard, you got through it, Neil, you're so great. But like that's 10 years ago. It took me years till I was even able to write about it. Look, You Are Awesome came out in 2019 and it has the first ever chapter <laughs> written about this divorce that happened in 2008. So just to tell you, this is what takes, it takes me time and I hate that it takes me so much time and I want to be stronger and I want to be mentally stronger. So I wrote this book to teach myself how. Well, I'm so glad that you did. And the the nine steps or the directional arrows that, that you created that help us cultivate resilience, I thought were extremely powerful. And while we don't have a whole lot of time to go through each one in depth, I would like it, if you could, to summarize. Okay. So there's a few concepts in the book. Number one is I say strongly in the book that we got to get rid of our cell phone addiction. It's a no huge doubt. issue. It's a huge issue. We touch our cell phones 2,500 times a day now. That's a real stat. We look at them over five hours a day. That's just our cell phones. Screen time alone is over 11 hours. That includes you know, TVs and computers and stuff like that. And what's happening is there's three P's of problems with cell phones. Number one, there's a physical problem because when you look at a bright screen within an hour of bedtime, your brain does not produce melatonin, the sleep hormones. That's a problem. You, get, you do not get a restful sleep, so you don't wake up rested the next day. Number two, There's a psychological problem because you are comparing your director's cut life with everybody else's greatest hits. And no matter how good you are, no matter how good your dinner was tonight, some one of your friends that like a lobster buffet in the Maldives, you know what I mean? You, you, <laughs> your dinner comparatively stinks yeah. every night and right. everything about you stinks every day. Compared to, somebody's got more followers, somebody's got more friends, somebody's got more like everyone's better than you always, okay? And then the third problem is a productivity problem is McKinsey now says we spend 31% of our day bookmarking, prioritizing, and switching between tasks. Meaning we don't actually do anything. We're just deciding what to do. Yeah. Have you ever looked at a Netflix screen for like half an hour, tried to decide what TV show or movie to watch, and then you know, your husband or your wife or your partner comes downstairs and you're like, what are we watching? And you're like, uh, we, we use like, you literally flunk the test of choosing something, so you close the thing up. You're like, it's time for bed. Like We can't even start something now. Those three Ps of problems, the physical problem, the psychological problem, the productivity problem, are making our lives, I believe, more anxious with their cell phones. And so the first thing I recommend people do is when you start, first of all, move the cell phone out of your bedroom. When I stand in front of crowds now and I say, put up your hand if you sleep within 10 feet of your cell phone, guess what? You won't be surprised. 95% of hands go up. Now, let me ask you a question, Shan. If you, if you drank a bottle of wine before bed every night, slept within 10 feet of a bottle of wine, and woke up and drank a bottle of wine in the morning, what would we call you? You're an addict, and, you, and that's what we are with our phones, but because everyone has the addiction, it's, you can't even see it, right? That's the problem. So first thing I say is get the cell phone out of your bedroom. You want to build resilience? Start every day with a two-minute morning practice. What is the two-minute morning practice? Grab a pen, grab a journal, and write down three prompts. I will let go of, I am grateful for, and I will focus on. Building resilience starts in the first two minutes of the day. By the way, the average person is awake for a thousand minutes a day. So taking two minutes every morning is very, very small. Okay? 
I will let go of the five pounds on my stomach from the holidays. I will let go of comparing my book to somebody else's book who's way better than me, right? I can, I'll compare myself to Tim Ferriss's book, whatever. I will let go of how many downloads my podcast gets. I have a podcast too. It's called Three Books. I, can I sweat about it and worry about it and wonder if it's big enough and I have enough reviews? Of course I can. And that's, that's something I would naturally do, but I have to write down. I will let go of. By the way, I didn't just make this up. There's real research around this. It says if you can crystallize and eject an anxiety onto pen and a piece of paper, you stop thinking about it all day. Most world yeah. religions know this. They have the confession chamber. The thing Absolutely. is, the fastest growing religion in the world is actually no religion. So most of us don't have a place right. to put our anxieties. You know, we have to write it down somewhere or, or they stay inside you. Then I am grateful for helps carve and deepen the neural pathways that help our brains focus on the positive. The brain is a muscle. It's very plastic. You can focus on the positive, but it takes work. Again, 200,000 years of evolution has made our brains look for negativity. Our brains are designed, and this is something I talk about in the happiness equation, our brains are designed to look for problems, find problems, and solve problems. Okay? You get a blood test back from your doctor, you want to see which thing is off the charts. You want to see the high cholesterol. You get a math test back from the teacher, you're like, well, which one did I get wrong? Like that, mm -hmm. you want the red ink. That's what you look for. You, you drive by a traffic accident, you rubberneck. On the highway, yeah, we all do. Yeah, and you can get 25 beautiful comments about something and one negative one, and that's the one that you focus on. And, and all the 25 go away. And it's not your fault. You no. have had 200,000 years of evolution making your brain look for saber-toothed tigers and bears in the forest. So you're awesome. And you're, you're species, you, guess what? Your species took over the planet. Congratulations. That amygdala, that little walnut-sized thing in the middle of the oldest part of your brain releasing a fight-or-flight hormone all day, it's great. It worked. There's 8 billion of us and we ate the other ones for dinner. Like it worked. We took over. But now we live in an era of abundance and we don't need it anymore. What we need is to not have the dopamine hits from our cell phone. What we need to have is serotonin and oxytocin and connection and love and touch and intimacy. So I am grateful for lets you, you know, catalog some of those positive moments and they have to be specific. Don't say your husband. Say, when my husband Marco put the toilet seat down. Don't say, my dog. Say, when my dog trooper shaked a paw. Like, be specific. That's the, that's the research, okay? And the third one is, I will focus on. Everyone is overwhelmed these days because they all feel busy with too much stuff to do. So spend a second in the morning carving a will do from your endless could do and should do. That two-minute practice I will let go of, I am grateful for, and I will focus on is how I start my day almost every day and it is a game changer on building a stronger and more resilient mind to open the day. I love it. And it's so easy to practice, really just get started two minutes. Anyone can do that. Exactly. And the other thing is, guess what? Then you've centered and grounded your mind before you go downstairs and check your cell phone, right? So now when you see what Trump tweeted, you don't care as much because you already have your focus ready for the day. You know what you're about. You've let go of your problem. So it means, it means less to you. So if you do, then you do what I do. And a lot of people do is then you stop following the news completely. Yeah. You try to unplug completely. It's always bad. It always will be. Just try that. But where you put your mind and your attention is what matters. If you listen to anxiety slayer, you're already doing it because you're deciding to consume this type of content instead. Yeah. And we have the choice and it, and I realize that some of these habits are tough to break, but Breaking the media habit is key to a healthy mind for sure. And I used to work in the media. I used to be an advertising director for 14 years. I, I get it. I know what's going on. 
I know. And, I, and I'm and i a recovering news junkie myself. I had two newspaper subscriptions. You know, I'm one of those crazy people. Two, two yeah. newspaper subscriptions yeah, yeah. in my house and five magazines. And so I was a news junkie. I was consuming all this. But the other thing I realized, Jen, is that guess what? People say, oh, what books are you reading? I was like, I don't have time to read books. No one has time to read books. Why do I have a podcast right now called Three Books? Because I've deleted all my news consumption and now I actually have time to read books again. Yes. So it's totally, at the end of my life, what would you rather have? A pile of old, yellowed, tattered New York Times or a beautiful bookshelf of books that you have totally ingested and internalized into your mind? Mm. Like that has made you a richer human being. Like that's, that's the model I use, that visualization. It's like at the end of my life, I'd rather have a bookshelf of yeah, no books doubt. I've read rather no, than a I bunch agree. of news of stuff that happened in 1998. Right, right. I agree. Era, okay. Like- that's one. The second thing is based on that same problem statement I identified earlier, which is the cell phone issue, is we need to go untouchable. Okay. So what I just talked about, which is called Reveal to Heal, chapter six from my new book, You Are Awesome, is, is one thing. The second thing I want to talk about is going untouchable. So what is going untouchable? It means that right now we are too reachable by anyone, any place, anytime. We are buying cell phones for our children at too young of an age. We are not banning them in schools like we should be doing. And so kids are texting all during the classroom. Parents say, oh, it's for security. I need to know where my kid is. Like, what if they get lost or something? And and the educators say, well, we can't take away cell phones because, you know, parents really want them. And then parents say, well, educators don't ban them. There's a problem. What you need to do is go untouchable. One day a week, I untether myself from the matrix. I'm talking about I leave my cell phone at home. I have no internet access all day. Guess what? It is by far and away the richest and most productive time of my week every week. It is it is how I launched my pocket. It's where I wrote my new book. Like it's, it is a game changer for me. And when I don't do that, guess what? My writing sputters and stops. I write about 500 words a day. On an untouchable day, again, no internet access, no distractions. I write about 5,000 words a day, mm. 10x my productivity. Mm-hmm. I ended up writing an article about this for Harvard Business Review. So if you type in untouchable days into Google, hbr.org has my article about it. And it was so popular that I turned it into a chapter of my new book. I realized that there's a connection between building mental strength and mental resilience and having one day a week where you are unplugged. And of course, when I tell my Jewish friends about this, they're like, you're dumb. We've been doing this for 2000 years. It's called the Sabbath, (laughs) you know, but I'm not Jewish. So I didn't know that. So I don't have the Sabbath, Right. but they're like, that's what we have the Sabbath for. The most, the coolest thing happened to me not too long ago was I went into like a really cool downtown trendy bar in Toronto. And sometimes after my wife, Leslie, I am remarried and we didn't tell that story, but I can talk about that. After my wife and uh, little kids are gone to bed, I, I need time like to just wander and walk a lot. And they all go to bed super early. So I was like one night a week, I have a Neil side out. And one night a week, my wife, Leslie has a Leslie side out. And on my knees, I just like, like to wander around. I might go to a bar. I might get a drink. I might go to exercise, whatever. And I walk into this cool downtown trendy bar, and there's a girl sitting at the bar, a pretty woman, uh, you know, and there's a candle there, and she's <laughs> reading like a big, thick, giant novel. Oh, and I said fantastic. to her, I, I know, and I went up to her, I was, like, I was like, that's so beautiful, just that you're sitting at a candlelit bar reading a big book. And she looked at me, she said, my cell phone broke a couple weeks ago, like I dropped my phone. And it broke. And for a few days, I was very anxious about it. 
and my friends were very anxious and my parents were very anxious and they couldn't reach me and nobody could get a hold of me. And I had to email people and say like, hi, like I broke my phone. So like you can't, like I'm not going to be reachable because I don't have the money to buy like a new, you know, how much phones are. Yeah. Sure. So, so she's like, I don't have money. So, so after a couple of days, I was like, you know, scrounging money and trying to get together and buy it. And then I realized after a few days, I was like, wait a minute, nobody can reach me. It's kind of nice. No, nobody knows where I am. I can I cannot worry about twelve texts an hour or yeah. a thousand, whatever it is you get. You know, and, and she's like, I'm she looked at me and she's like, you know, I'm I want to say like late twenties, early thirties. She's like, I will never get another cell phone again. You would be astonished. Well, you probably won't be astonished, Shan, but like uh, the average person would be astonished. And the number of people I know that run some of the world's largest YouTube channels, some of the world's largest podcasts, some of the world's largest Facebook pages, all these like super, super tech people, I can name you their names. Many of them do not own a cell phone. They know that the way that they get deep into their craft or their art or their strong mind state is by not having a distraction device in their pocket. You know, a friend of mine, Kevin. That's such a great label for it too, a distraction device. That's exactly what it is. Well, my friend Kevin calls it the pants computer. (laughs) He's like, the pants computer is a lot of fun, but if you leave your pants computer at home, you'll actually be living life. You'll be reading books. You'll be be meditatively walking. How, How I used to love the days when people on the bus or the subway or the bar would talk to each other. And I, I feel like a lunatic when I talk to people on the subway. But this happened to me the other day. I talked to people on the subway. I was with my kid and we were laughing and talking to strangers. And I left. And I, and I, I remember thinking to myself, wow, that is so, like, people were looking at me like I was a bit nuts. Like, no one else was really doing that. And then I got home and I guess somebody had recognized me from one of my books or whatever. There was an email in my inbox saying, hey, after you left, everybody on the whole subway train was buzzing. People were talking to each other. A couple people said like, wow, it's, no one ever talks on the subway. We should all, but we all need to talk on the subway. It's, we, we are a community of people who are the most social animal ever in our history. And there's a reason why Daniel Gilbert, who by the way, is the Harvard psychologist who wrote Stumbling on Happiness, has a very famous quote. If I can know everything there is to know about you, your gender, your nationality, your income, your age, there's only one thing I would need to know to know if you were happy, which is the strength of your relationships with your friends and family. Mm-hmm. These days, when you live really far apart from your friends and family, or you move for a job, or you move for a girlfriend or a boyfriend, sometimes our fracturing family is a big issue for our disconnection and I think our, our resilience. We feel alone a lot more. Yeah, I think so too. I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk about what we can do to support our children and adolescents who are, who are struggling at an astronomical rate with anxiety and panic attacks. And it, I mean, it's just, it's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. I just read the book, Charlotte's Web. Um, so my podcast is called Three Books because I asked people to pick three books that changed their life and somebody picked Charlotte's Web and I hadn't read Charlotte's Web forever. And in the, in the book, Charlotte's Web, I don't know if you've read it or read it recently, mm-hmm. Shan. Well, not but recently, like, but yes, I have. There's read. a very vivid description of kids jumping off a giant rope, hanging from the roof of a barn and swinging out of the barn over like hay. And like, it's, it's a scary, vivid description. And it says like every mother's heart in the county is nervous because they're worried that their kid's going to plummet, you know, to their death or whatever. And it's obviously an unrelated 
description to the story of Charlotte the Spider <laughs> building right. the webs. But I'm, it stuck with me because I was like, oh, yeah, as I look around the world today, what I see amongst my children's peers is an incredibly high amount of programming. Violin lessons for six-year-olds, tennis lessons for seven-year-olds, karate every Tuesday night, um, incredible amounts of programming and deep specialization and the unseated or unstated belief that if they aren't getting ahead, then they're getting them behind. And I would even throw homework into the mix of this because as you probably know, no study has ever shown that any form of homework other than reading actually creates higher academic performance before like around age 14 or 15. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying for elementary school, homework actually does not do anything for your child. And there's a great book out called Range by David Epstein. It came out this past year, 2019. And it plays directly into the research I've been doing on resilience. Actually, it turns out the way to better your kids' long-term psychology is to let them do like freaking nothing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like like freaking nothing. Like not like no. Cancel the violin lessons. Cancel the soccer practice. Cancel the kung fu. Cancel the idea that they have to be places at certain times on certain schedules. When they come home from school, they will already be mentally exhausted. It is exhausting to be in school and to balance all those social dynamics and the teacher dynamics and the work dynamics. What they need is time to decompress without screens in totally unstructured ways. Now, you can say, oh, Neil, who are you? You know, you just said you're a dad of like very young kids. You don't really know. Sure, that's fine. I'm trying to use research from David Epstein. I'm trying to use, re which is called range for a reason, because it shows that having a broader range is a more successful pathway than deep specialization. I'm trying to use examples from literature, like the Charlotte's Web story. I'm right. trying to use examples from uh, what, I, you know, what I see amongst my, my own children is that if a kid comes home anxious on a Friday and doesn't fully unwind till a Sunday, then you ship him back to school on Monday, maybe you should take out the programming on the Thursday and Friday nights. Do you know what I mean? So that they- That's too much. Too much. Too yeah, much. Play in the street. Yeah, exactly. And that's something that uh, my husband and I decided very early on in, our, in raising our daughter is that she would not and that we would not be programmed like that. And, and so she's become an incredible- artist and writer uh, on her own time. Like when she's feeling decompressed or when she's feeling, uh, I have the space to, to do this, to create, to whatever. And she's become, I mean, it's just phenomenal. And she's also learned about boundaries, but she also has the screen time thing going. Even though we waited uh, later than most, she didn't get her phone until 16. It, it's still is so in, incredibly invasive. Mm -hmm. and, and it's something that we have to constantly, and it's not just her. I have, I have a smartphone too, is <clears throat> just to stop and say, what am, what am I doing? How, mm -hmm. how in the world did I just fall down the rabbit hole for an hour going from one space to the next, to the next, to the next? And these young ones are, are doing that. And so they're constantly bombarded. That comparison, being an adolescent and, and already struggling with all of the feelings and emotions and changing and chemical, you know, all of that. Mm -hmm. It's just like, ah, it's a recipe for pain and suffering for sure. Yeah. And all friends of mine who have children at that age or that in that sort of mid-teens to mid-20s age are all struggling with this. And 
it's not your fault. If you read a book called Irresistible by Adam Alter, and by the way, I applaud you on, on the cell phone at age 16 because, you know, these days kids get them at age 10 or 12. It's so, it's so, it's so young. Then he talks about the, the addictive properties that are built into the devices and built into the software. So it's not your fault. Your brain cannot handle, for example, endless scrolling. Right. Like 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 Instagram endlessly scrolls. Netflix starts a new show after you're done watching it. YouTube has another show. That your brain actually does not know how to deal with that because for two hundred thousand years our species has been scrounging for berries in the forest till we were full. It was about resource. You know, get as many resources as you can, then you're done. Similarly, you can't handle your brain can't handle an all you can eat buffet, right? right? Like it's the same idea. You can't. But Instagram is an all you can eat buffet, right? And the like shines up. There's even studies that show that. The social media companies sometimes purposely dole out the likes in disproportionate times because that makes you check it more often. So if you get 10 likes on your photo, then you know one like comes in in the first hour and then nine likes come in the second. You see what I'm saying? So that you like then want to check. And then the idea that one photo could have 100 likes and one could have five is what makes you check because it's not consistent because it's purposely designed not to be. There's so much he exposes in this great book. Again, it's Irresistible by Adam Alter. He's a New York University NYU professor. But what I would say is we have to put the genie back in the box, and it is possible. Yeah. Okay, there are organizations like the Center for Humane Technology by Tristan Harris that are working on things like endless scrolling to get rid of it through Congress. But for you and me and us in the world, I would say get a Palm Box, P-O-M-B-O-X, Palm box is a, is a box. It's a beautifully designed little box. You can put your phone in, you set the timer, it locks it for you. I so I, yeah, I have friends that say, oh, we weren't paying attention to our kid at dinner. So we decided that, well, when me and my husband come home from work, we're going to put our phones in our palm box from 5.30 till 8.30 and then our baby's asleep and then we can get them back out. But right, we right. can't touch them. What I do is on Fridays when I get home, I say to Leslie, my wife, here's my phone. Do not give this back to me until Monday morning. Don't tell me where you're hiding it. And she will actually hide it. And I, the thing, the way that gets me around that is that I have my laptop still. So you see, if I really want to check Twitter, I can open my laptop. I can log into Twitter. Sure. Also, I don't save my passwords for the same reason. Like disable cookies and use DuckDuckGo, DuckDuckGo the browser, because when you don't, don't have pass, then you have to like, what's my password again? And <laughs> see, it's, so the more friction you can create on the path to the siren, you know, yeah. the, the seductive temptress that is your Twitter at replies, the the more less likely you will want to and be willing to ease into checking them. So yeah, then you only check it. Twitter once a day. And I also similarly, I have deleted every single social media app for my cell phone. Yeah, me too. Right? So there's things like this that like we can work on it, but we have to be intentional about it and we have to try. As we wind down uh, our conversation today that just flew by so quickly, I guess I'd like to to find out if there's one thing that you'd like to share with our listeners that they could start doing right now in this moment, right after this show to start living more intentionally. What would that be? There's many things I could say, but we may as well keep the thread line going that we've, we've been talking about is like come up with a system where your cell phone charger lives as far away from your bed as possible. So if you live upstairs, maybe your cell phone charger goes in the basement. That way you have to go down there to plug it in at night and you go upstairs. If you say, oh, it's my alarm clock, go to Walmart. It's $10. Buy an alarm clock. Super cheap. If you say, like, there's no excuse 
for having mm-hmm. it for 95% of people having it in your bed. It's horrible for your mind. It lowers your resilience. It's bad for your brain. Melatonin production decreases, and it distracts you when you get up instead of letting you center and ground yourself with the two-minute morning practice we just got, we talked about. I will let go of. I am grateful for. I will focus on. Move your charger far, far away from your bed. I'd like to add, get all screens out of your bedroom. I don't think our laptops and our televisions belong in there either because what happens? I totally agree. We have no screens in our bedroom. We never have. It's really important to us. And do our kids complain? Sure. Like this yeah. morning, my kid was like, I want to watch a show. I'm like, no, no, I want to get this. I had to pay extra. I had to pay Honda. Like we bought a Honda Odyssey, a van. I had to pay extra to get no screens in it. I believe it. Yeah. We, we never let our daughter have a, any, any screens in her bedroom growing up either. But Becca has a television, so I'm like, it's just not happening. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's just not happening. It's going to happen. Well, gonna your happen. daughter will be the most well-adjusted person as she gets older. It's not. It's the thing is that right now we are living with stuff. We are living with a kryptonite that we didn't know existed a few years ago. That's part exactly. of the problem. You know, in 2011, which is not that long ago, we used our cell phones for 18 minutes a day. In 2019, in 2018, it was four hours, 20 minutes. And last year, for the first time ever, it crossed five hours. I'm talking five hours a just, day. Just stunning. It's mind-blowing. It's stunning. Wow. It's, do you remember when it was like, oh, wow, you got a gig a month. That's a lot. And I was like, oh, you got 10 gigs. Nothing really changed. Like, you still get emails and messages. Do you know what I'm right. saying? Right. Like you're suddenly, <laughs> it's just that that's how much more we're using them. I am really grateful that you're doing this work in the world and the messages that you've shared have been so very helpful. Thank you so much for making time to join me on Anxiety Slayer and keep up the good work. The exact same to you. You're doing great work. It's a pleasure to be on here. Thanks so much for having me. That was Neil Pesricha, author of You Are Awesome. Get your copy today at neil.blog. You Are Awesome is packed with research-based strategies, tools, and lessons to move from thin-skinned to thick-skinned failure-prone to failure-proof, and anxious to awesome. You can also get the Book of Awesome for free when you share your email at 1000awesomethings.com. 